can turn to Acts chapter 20. That's where we'll be today. But while you're turning there, I have a few really important announcements for you that I just want to make sure that you are absolutely crystal clear on. The first one is the most important. If you show up next Sunday at Southwood in the morning, the doors will be locked. We're not having church next Sunday in the morning. Okay, we're all meeting together in the evening, 6 p.m. at Reed Arena. So we're getting all the campuses together, all the services, college adults, kids, everybody together to celebrate the 50th anniversary of our church. So next Sunday, do not come in the morning to church. Please remember that. Come to Reed Arena, 6 p.m. at night. So if there's some of you who were not running the marathon because you had church, I've taken away your excuse. So... I won't see you there because I don't do that kind of stuff, but you're welcome to join the marathon now. So we'll see you next Sunday evening. That's the first announcement. Second, it is our Christmas co-op. This is a really significant ministry that we do as a church. It's right here at Southwood. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks is turn the foyer into a store for the community where we sell new toys and clothing at deeply discounted prices. We found that works better than just giving the stuff away. We put it all out. Parents can come in and buy stuff at super reduced prices, and then we wrap it for them so that they can have Christmas with their kids. So we would love to have you bring toys and clothes, again, new ones, to the church office here at Southwood anytime between December 1st or December 14th. Just bring your donations up here. If you'd rather give money, you can do that. All the money that is given or that's made through this event, we just go back out to Walmart and buy more stuff. So we just use up the money until it's gone to buy more toys and clothes for the Christmas co-op. So we'd love to have your donations for that. We also need people to help us wrapping presents and running the store. So if you can help volunteer, if you'll email You'll notice that address there, Mandy O'Donnell at grace-bible.org. Email her and she'll get you plugged in. There's cards in the foyer as you walk out to walk you through Christmas co-op and how you can be involved. Third announcement. Finally, it is time to sign up for our Honduras mission trip this summer. It's going to be July 15th through the 22nd. We need lots of people because we're building a lot of different teams. We'll have like a medical team, a veterinary team, a construction team, children's ministry team, evangelism team. They'll be doing ministry in villages in Honduras. We'd love to have you join us, but we need to have you sign up here in the next couple weeks. So if you will email, if you're interested in this trip, either to apply for it or you just want to learn more. You don't have to to make a decision yet, but send an email to globaloutreach at grace-bible.org and they'll give you information about the Honduras trip. We'd love to have you join us for that. Okay, so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 20. Now it's the week after Thanksgiving now. So when I came into the office on Monday morning, Pam, Miss Pam, who, who runs our front office, she asked me the same question that she always does this time of year. She asked, how was your Thanksgiving? And anytime somebody asks you, how was your Thanksgiving, you face a choice. You can, you can give them the easy answer, you can give them the truthful answer. The easy answer is it was great. That's what we say to be polite. But the truthful answer, if you're a parent of little kids like I am, I guarantee that the correct truthful answer was not, it was great. No, because having little kids over the holidays is incredibly exhausting. They totally wear you out. Here's what Thanksgiving looked like for me. So this was Thanksgiving Day at my house. My brother was in town and figured out how to do this on his iPhone. He's taking pictures of me as we're doing this, and my kids will not leave me alone. Somebody was asking, was that all set up? No, this is just life (laughs) for me. 
and for Julie. And so in making this video, I actually pinched a nerve in my neck. I've been on pain relievers and like that Tim's unit that shocks your neck every day since because I did this. So the holidays are incredibly exhausting, totally wears you out. Well, we're getting into the holiday season. It's just begun. And so December, it just flies by. It is like nonstop work. It's crazy busy from mid-November until sometime in January. It's busy for all of you. Students, this is crazy time. Like you got finals now. And we adults, we feel for you. We remember that. You are living at a coffee shop. You're shooting Red Bull for breakfast. You are exhausted getting ready for these tests. It's an incredibly stressful time of life. And adults, we know the sad reality that it only gets worse after you graduate. Life gets even busier and and even more stressful because now you have kids to take care of and deadlines at work that you have to meet so you can earn money to pay for all the presents you just bought and you got to send Christmas cards and set up the decorations and attend the kids' plays and go to Christmas parties. You have so much stuff to do. It is nonstop for the next six weeks. And so in the midst of all that busyness, what I want to do this morning is try to, try to cut through that busyness and get down to the things that really matter. What really matters in your life? Well, I have some, some news for you that may be sad for some of you, really relieving for others of you. 20 years from now, no one will remember whether you sent a Christmas card. No one will remember what present you bought them. No one will remember if you hung the Christmas lights or put up the tree. All of that stuff will fade. Students, even your test scores, 20 years from now, you won't remember what grade you got on that test. All that stuff fades away with time. So what stuff lasts? What what stuff in life really matters 20 years from now? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 20. Paul is going to give us three priorities in life that we can be doing now, this month, December 2015, that will still matter 20 years from now. And I've given you a real easy acronym to remember these three priorities, MSG, not the food additive that makes you sleepy, but three priorities that will matter for the rest of your life, model, speak, and guard. I want to walk you through these three priorities, model, speak, guard. But first, let's set up our passage. Look with me, chapter 20 and verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. A lot of place names. Here's what the world looked like on Paul's third missionary journey. He starts on the left in Greece. He's headed to the right, to Jerusalem. He needs to get there quickly. So he's going to pass by the city of Ephesus. And just for a day, he wants to visit with the elders of that church because he had spent years with those men, pouring into their lives. He, he really loved the church in Ephesus. So he calls them together because he realizes that once he gets to Jerusalem, things are going to go really poorly for him. He knows that, that his time, that his freedom is up. Look with me at verse 22. Paul says, Now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Jump down to verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. 
So God had supernaturally revealed to Paul that he would be arrested in Jerusalem. And then actually the whole rest of the book of Acts is Paul's story of being arrested, put in prison, and then sent to Rome to be tried by the emperor. And what we know is that Paul is never going to see these men again. He never sees the leaders of the Ephesian church until they re-meet again in heaven. And so you can think of chapter 20 in the passage that we're reading this morning as Paul's last words. His last words to people whom he really loves. And if you think about last words, if you are speaking your last words to someone, you're not going to waste them on small talk. You're not going to talk about trivial things. You're going to talk about stuff that matters, stuff that counts. That's what Paul does. He reveals to these men three things that will always matter in life. Three things that will determine the quality of your life from here on out. So let's jump into those three things. The first of those three things that will still matter 20 years from now, the M in MSG is model. Model Christ-like character. Be a model to other people of the character of Jesus Christ. Now this one is tough for me because I'm a, I'm a task-oriented kind of person. What that means is that I measure my success as a person on any particular day based on whether or not I got my to-do list done. So I kid you not, when I was in college at A&M, every night I took a shower, and in the shower, what I did is to review my to-do list, and if I accomplished everything, feel pride, and if I didn't berate myself. That was how every day ended for me in college, because I'm so task-oriented. So every time I would hear somebody say something like, who you are is more important than what you do, I'd get really annoyed. Because to a task-oriented person like me, that sounds like an excuse for laziness. I'm all about getting stuff done. But the longer that I've lived now, the more I've realized the truth of that. Because here I am almost 20 years out of college, and I don't remember the stuff I got done. I don't remember my to-do list. I don't remember what I got done on a particular day of the week. All of that stuff is forgotten. What I do remember is the kind of person I was. And if you go and talk to my friends who knew me in college, they don't remember what I got done, but they do remember who I was for better or for worse. And so what I've learned over the years is that what defines our legacy as, as humans, as individuals, is our character, not our competence, not, not our credentials, but our character, the kind of people we are, the man or the woman that you are inside. That's what defines your legacy. That's what people will remember for decades to come. Your legacy is shaped by your character. And so we're going to talk about character for a minute. What does it mean to have a Christ-like character? What are the traits or attributes of your life if you're going to live like Jesus? Well, there's a lot. Bible lists a lot of traits that should be true of you, way more than I can cover in one sermon. So I'm just going to cover the three that Paul mentions. Three character traits that, that we need to have in our lives if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to model Jesus to the world. So first character trait that you need to have if you're going to live a life that counts is humility. Look with me back in chapter 20 at verse 18. And when they had come to him, that is the elders, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Serving the Lord with all humility. Now, I don't think it's a surprise to any of you that, that God expects us to be humble. You've been in church, you've been around long enough to know that humility is a good thing that God wants. The question is, what does it mean? What's the definition 
of that term. Most people think that humility means that you don't brag about yourself. That's how the world would define it. You just don't, you don't brag about yourself in front of other people. And that is included. That's true. But that's not nearly enough. Biblical humility goes so far beyond just not bragging about yourself. Here's what biblical humility looks like. I'll give you a couple verses. The first one comes from Paul. So here's humility in Paul's life. Kind of an odd verse. 2 Corinthians eleven seven. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Paul is defending his ministry in Corinth, and he connects humility with preaching without charge. And here's what's going on. Paul was a missionary, and and it is the biblical right of missionaries to be financially supported through their ministry. God likes that. He's pleased with it. He's given them the right to be financially supported. And yet Paul says, for a variety of reasons, when I was in Corinth, I went without that right. I sacrificed that right for the good of the Corinthians. That's what humility means to Paul. Not just not bragging about yourself, but sacrificing your legitimate right. Paul deserved to get paid as a missionary. He sacrificed that right for the good of someone else. That's the same definition of humility you see in Jesus. So here's humility in Jesus' life, Philippians 2. That's kind of your go-to chapter when you want to learn about humility. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what does humility mean for Jesus? Well, it's not just that Jesus didn't brag about himself. That's not going nearly far enough. Humility for Jesus means that he sacrificed his rights. And Jesus is God, so he's got a lot of rights. He has the right to be worshipped and honored and exalted. He sacrificed that to become one of us. And, And not just one of us, but a poor son of a poor carpenter. And and Jesus, he has the right to life. He's the creator of life, and yet he sacrificed that right and chose death for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved. And so humility, biblically, what it means is that you take something you deserve, a right that belongs to you, and you give it up for the good of another person. Okay, so here we are going into the Christmas holidays, and you have a lot of rights. Students, you're about to be done with finals, and then you're going to go home, and you're going to have a lot of rights. Like, it's your right to rest. It's your right to sleep in. It's your right to play PS4. You earned it. It's your right to go watch movies and play with your friends. The question is, are you willing to sacrifice those rights, even for a day, even for a few hours, to serve someone else? Are you willing to let go of what you deserve so that you can help your parents around the house or initiate with a sibling or your grandparents or reach out and serve a friend in need? Will you sacrifice your rights for the good of someone else? That's what humility looks like. Adults, the same principle applies to us. We have a lot of rights. We have the right to spend our time and money the way we desire to. We have the right to be respected and treated well by our friends and family. We have the right to be obeyed by our kids. The question is, are we willing to sacrifice those rights for the good of other people? When people do us harm, when our kids don't obey us, when people don't treat us well or expect too much of us this holiday season, are we willing to forgive that and let that go? Even though it's our right to hold on to that wrong, Will we let it go? 
Will we let go of our right for rest, for entertainment, to serve other people? That's humility. You sacrifice what you deserve, your rights, for the good of someone else. If you want to be like Jesus and live a life that counts 20 years from now, you will choose humility. You'll choose to sacrifice your rights for the good of others. Second character quality that Paul lists for us is hinted at at the end of verse 19 when Paul talked about trials which had come upon him. Paul preached the gospel and that brought pain. He suffered because of his ministry. So look at verse 24. Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What Paul's saying is that he persevered in ministry. His ministry was to preach the gospel. It brought him pain. It would eventually take his life and yet he persevered in it. But, but perseverance, it's not just about persecution and ministry. It's about life. You see, life is really hard. And, and men and women who follow Jesus, who have Christ-like character, in the midst of the hardness of life, they persevere in hard work. Look with me later in the chapter, verse 34. Paul says, You yourselves know that these hands, meaning his own hands, ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Life requires hard work. Students, you've got to earn a degree. That's hard. Adults, you've got to work. That's hard. You've got to raise kids. That's hard. You've got to pay your bills. That's hard. But men and women of character persevere in hard work. They keep working hard without giving up. Over the years, I've talked to a lot of students who were passionate to follow Jesus, and some of them were so passionate to follow Jesus that they let their studies slide. Because after all, Jesus is more important than a GPA, right? Yeah. But what these students didn't understand is that Jesus doesn't let you choose between following him and being a good student. That's not a choice you get to make. To follow Jesus, you must be a good student. I'm not talking about GPA, not talking about grades, I'm talking about hard work. To follow Jesus, you must bend your mind and your will to whatever task Jesus has given you in life. And if you are a student, then the task Jesus has given you is to study. That's what he wants you to do. That's the task in life Jesus has set before you. So you need to do it. You need to get it done. You need to work hard. That's how you honor Jesus, by doing the work he's given you. Adults, the same principle applies to us. If you have a job, you want to know the easiest way to ruin your reputation to your coworkers? Be lazy at work. Because that costs the whole team. Why would they listen to what you say about Jesus if you're lazy? So that means we need to work hard at whatever job Jesus has given us. Now, that doesn't mean you overwork. You don't cheat your family. But when you are at the office, you work hard. You set an example of what perseverance looks like in a job. Okay, so a man or a woman of Christ-like character works hard. They persevere in hard work. That's the second attribute that God lays out for us in this passage. We work hard at whatever task Jesus has given us. Third character trait that Paul gives us. Third thing that helps us to be like Jesus to the world, contentment. 
God calls us to be content. Look at verse 33. Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I've coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. I've always struggled with the idea of coveting. What exactly does it mean to covet? Some people describe coveting as like desiring stuff that's not yours, but here's the problem. I can't control what I desire. If I see a Ferrari drive by me, I will want that. I will, because it's a work of art that goes 200 miles an hour. I will always want that. I can't stop myself from desiring that. And that's okay because God doesn't hold you responsible for your desires. They simply spring up in your heart when you see something that's desirable, that's attractive to you. But as soon as that desire springs up in your soul, now you face a choice. Now the question is, what will you do with that desire? You can covet To covet means that when you see that that thing that you desire, you say to yourself, I should have that. It's not fair that I don't have that, and I'm going to make it my ambition in life to get that thing. That's coveting. The opposite choice is contentment. Contentment looks at that thing that's really desirable to you. It feels desire well up in your soul, and it says to God, well, God, that is a beautiful thing that I'd love to have one day, but you know what? I'm grateful for what you've given me today. And God, you are good even if you never give me that. That's what contentment looks like. So let's make this really practical. This holiday, you walk into a friend's house, and it is bigger than yours and nicer than yours. They've got granite countertops, all new appliances. They've got a study and a game room. And hold your breath, they got a three-car garage, and you want it. You cannot keep yourself from wanting it because it's beautiful. It's amazing. So you see this beautiful house, and, and you feel this desire spring up inside of you. That's okay. You can't control the desire, but now you have a choice. You can covet. To covet means you look around that house, and you say, I should have this house. You say, it's not fair that I live in my dinky little house or my dinky little apartment. Life is not fair to me. I should have this. It's my right. That's coveting. Or you can choose contentment. Contentment looks around at that beautiful house and says to God, wow, God, this this is a beautiful house. I'd love to have a house like this one day, but God, I'm grateful for what you've given me today. I'm grateful that I'm not sleeping on the street. You are good to me even if you never give me this. That's contentment. A person of Christ-like character chooses contentment. You choose to give thanks for what you do have. And so it's Christmas, which means it's the season to covet. That's what Christmas does to us for like six weeks solid or maybe three months now. It's so long, the season. You're just bombarded all the time with advertisements designed to get you to covet. It's all these advertisements are showing you clothes or gadgets or cars or whatever, all these things that you feel a desire for. Or maybe it's not a thing, maybe it's an experience or a relationship. You're single and you look out and you see these families having fun, it seems so ideal. You don't see their pinched nerve in their neck. It looks great to you. And and you feel this desire and you really want to have that in your life. Okay, you can't control those desires, that's okay that you feel a desire for that new thing or that new relationship or that new experience, the question is, what will you do with that desire? If you want to be like Jesus, what you're going to do with that desire is you're going to turn it into a trigger that reminds you to give thanks. You're going to feel that desire and you're going to say to God, God, I sure wish I could have that one day, but you know what? You are good to me. Thank you for what you have already given me. And if you never give me anything more, still I am blessed. 
My challenge for you this Christmas, you're going to feel a lot of desires. Culture is designed to elicit desires in you. When you feel those desires, use them as reminders to give thanks. Let it just be a trigger. You feel the desire, the Ferrari goes by, give thanks to God for what he's already given you. Okay, so Christ-like character, that's the first step to living a life that will count 20 years from now. You choose to become a person of humility and perseverance and contentment. Second part of, of this message, the second thing that Paul wants us to see, the second priority that will help you to live a life that counts 20 years from now is the S in our MSG. It's to speak. Speak the gospel. Now let's look at what Paul says here in chapter 20. Look with me in verse 20. Paul says how I I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I, I have not shrunk from the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel to Jews, to Gentiles, to anyone who would listen. Now jump down to verse 26. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So if you want to live a life that matters 20 years from now, you are always going to be speaking the word of God, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life as a free gift. Now, I'll be honest with you, as I was putting this sermon together, this was a hard part of the sermon for me because I feel so incredibly repetitive. Are, are you catching that I've had this application in almost every single sermon this fall? You've heard the gospel, and I've told you to go share it. I was talking to Matt Morton, the teaching pastor over at Creekside, and he said this week, I feel like a broken record. It's like, this is all we say, the gospel and go share it, the gospel and go share it. And that was kind of giving me pause is making me feel bad about this sermon until I remembered, wait a minute, every Saturday, we all get together, like all hundred thousand of us in the same big open air room. And we all sing the same songs and yell the same yells that we've been yelling since we were freshmen at A&M. Why do we do that? Because that's what Aggies do. Those yells and those songs, they define us. They are our culture. They are our tradition. They make us Aggies. And so we never tire of them because the things that you repeat define you. Okay, so the gospel, I want you to think of it this way. The reason we talk about the gospel every single week at Grace is because the gospel is our fight song. The gospel is our gigum. It's what we say to each other every time we gather together because it's what defines us. This message is what you are. We will never stop talking about the gospel because it is us. It is what defines us. It is our fight song. But it is also our responsibility. And that's what Paul is getting at with the really odd thing that he said in verse 26 about being innocent of the blood of all men. He's connecting, he's pointing to something God said in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. God was speaking to Ezekiel, the prophet, and God said, I have appointed you, Ezekiel, a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. 
But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. What God is saying is that if you know that harm is coming to a person and you do not warn them, then you are morally responsible. Reminds me of of about a year ago, a day when I was at the racetrack with a friend and he was driving a car that was not in good shape and he brought it into the garages and he's checking it out and he's about to hop back in it and I look over and I notice that there is oil dripping down all over the front tire and the front brakes. And if you know anything about cars, if you go out at high speed and you clamp on the brakes and there's oil on them, nothing will happen and you'll hit the wall and die. And so it's a really serious thing. Now I had a choice at that moment and I hope you all know what I did. (laughs) I spoke. I stopped him from going out there. I didn't say to myself, well, I'll let him figure it out when he gets out there. No, that would have been evil. That would have been criminally negligent of me. And yet the same principle applies to the gospel. You know something the world doesn't. You know that all people are sinners who deserve the wrath of God, and it is coming. And you know that there is a way to be delivered. There's a way to be saved. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. You know that. The world doesn't know that. So you are morally responsible to speak. If you don't tell someone the good news of Jesus, God will hold you responsible. That doesn't mean you'll go to hell. You're saved. That's by grace alone. But God will discipline you. You will face punishment because you didn't speak. This is a really serious thing. If you want to live a life that counts 20 years from now and not face the discipline of God, you must open your mouth and speak the words of the gospel. And so I'll encourage you over this Christmas break to remember at the beginning of the semester, I asked you to think of three people by name. Do you remember that? Three people in your life who don't yet know Jesus. I want you to picture their faces. You know their names, three people who don't yet know Jesus. I asked you to be praying for those three people every single week this fall, praying that God would save them and that he'd use you to share the gospel with them. I want to challenge you to start praying for that every day, praying for the salvation of those three people. That's what I'm doing in my life. I've got three guys. Actually, I have more than that, but praying for three guys in particular, that God would grab hold of them and that he'd use me to do it. Pray for those three people in your life. In this Christmas break, I want you to pray for the courage to say something. I want you to pray for the courage to speak the words of the gospel because that's our responsibility. We've got to tell them. We've got to warn them and we've got to share the good news that there is a way of salvation. So if you want to live a life of count, that counts, first, you model Christ-like character. Second, you speak the gospel. Third, the G in MSG, you guard yourself and others from lies. Guard yourself and others from lies. Look with me at verse 28. Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now, he's talking particularly to elders 
who have the unique role of guarding the church from lies and from deceit and from division. But the same principle applies to all of us. God is challenging each one of us to guard ourselves and guard other people, whatever flock God's entrusted to you. If you're a parent, that's your kids. It's your spouse. It's your roommates. It's your friends. It's whoever you can guard, whoever you can watch over. God has challenged each and every one of us to guard ourselves and others from lies. Because we have enemies in this world. I don't know if you've thought about that. And I'm not talking about ISIS. All they can do is take your life and then you go to heaven. So it's a win. They have no power over you. But there are enemies who do have power over you, and they're on the board. These are your four enemies according to the Bible, far worse than anything else you face in life. Satan, the world, which is under his power, the world as a system, as a worldview. Satan is the father of lies, and so his world is always feeding you lies. You face the enemy of false teachers, people who claim to be Christians but are trying to lead you astray. And you face the enemy within Sin that's still in your heart trying to convince you to walk away from the Lord. Those are your real enemies because those can destroy your life, your marriage, your kids. They can ruin everything. And so the only way that we can fight back against these enemies that are trying to deceive us, trying to lie to us, is we must cling to the truth. That's always how you fight a lie. You saturate your mind with truth. And so what truth do you use? Well, the word of God. This is your defense in life. So all the stuff in the news about how to defend yourself, this is your defense. Because the enemies that really count aren't fighting with guns and bullets, they're fighting with lies. And this is how you defend yourself from them. Okay, so as the men go back to prepare communion, let me illustrate for you what I want you to be doing with the Word of God. Uh, every morning this month, it's December, so every morning you're going to wake up and it's going to be cold, right? And before you go out into the world, you are going to prepare yourself. You're going to put on long sleeves, maybe a sweater, maybe a coat, because it would be foolish to go out into the cold in a swimsuit. You, you just get sick. You'd, you'd be ill from that. So you defend yourself by suiting up with long sleeves. Same thing applies to your mind. Every day before you go out into the world, which is full of lies and deceit, you need to suit up with the truth of the word of God. You need to put on your armor to protect yourself. And you do that. I'm just going to really practically challenge you. I want to encourage, December's crazy busy, but every one of us can find at least three minutes a day to spend in the word of God. Every day, I want you to spend at least three minutes, and it can be any form that you want. You can listen to it, audio Bible, maybe in your car as you're driving, or you can read it in the Bible in the morning, or uh, you, can, you can read it with other people in like a small group, or, or you can study the Bible, or you can memorize it, however you want to do it. I just want you to be spending at least three minutes a day. So pretty much as long as it takes, to, at least if you're a guy, to put on your clothes, spend that amount of time in the Word of God. So you're suiting up and preparing yourself so that you can be on guard for your heart, for your mind, and so that you can speak truth to one another. Because that's how we guard each other is we speak the truth of God's word to each other. That protects us from the lies of Satan, this world, false teachers, and sin within us. And so this morning, we're going to end by taking communion, which is an opportunity for us to bathe our minds in truth. That's what communion is. Every month we we talk about, we do this little tradition, this little ceremony. It's not a mechanical thing. Communion is meant to be a reminder of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. The problem with December in this country is that every day you are being told that your life will not be complete until you buy that next thing. 
That's the message of Christmas in our culture. Buy one more thing and then your life will be complete. Communion is our reminder that our lives are already complete because we have Jesus. There is nothing else we will ever need because we have Jesus Christ. He died for us and rose from us so that we can have joy, love, hope, family, peace in our hearts. We have everything we already need in Jesus Christ. And communion is our chance to remember that. So men, if you'll come forward, what I'm going to ask you to do as communion passes is I want you to take the next couple minutes to just give thanks. You're not asking for anything. You're just giving thanks for what Jesus has already given you. Give thanks that he gave you his life, that he died for you so you could be forgiven. Thank him that he's given you peace and joy and hope. Let's take this time to give thanks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember that you gave your body, your life, your blood for us. You died so that we could live. You took on our sin so that we could be forgiven. You took our place so that we could be redeemed. We praise you and we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we remember this morning that we already have everything we'll ever need. We have joy, we have hope, we have peace, we have life. We know love. We have a family that we'll never lose now because of you. We're sorry that we forget that. We're sorry that we look around and see all the possessions of this world, all the experiences that people are having, and we think that we need those things. No, we don't. God, please help us to remember that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us everything that we'll ever need. And so we pray that out of love for you and out of love for your gift, we pray that we would tell other people, Lord, we grieve that there's so many people in this world who don't yet know you, Jesus. We pray that this Christmas that that would change. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to speak the words of the gospel. We pray that you would save each of our three. That they would come to know you and know the hope and the peace and the love that you give. Pray, Lord Jesus, do whatever it takes to help us to be your witnesses of this world. You are worthy of praise and, and honor. You are worthy of whatever sacrifices we make. We praise you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Now, if you'll stand, let's respond in worship together.